You're listening to the Victory Church Podcast. Here at Victory, we are called to equip a caring, committed community of worshipers to reach their world for Jesus. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Jesus, really? So, why should I believe what the Bible says? Okay, what about all the other religions? What is truth anyway? Sorry, I I guess I've got a lot of questions. Maybe we're all interested in finding truth. everybody. Good to see you. Good to have the people who are here in the room with us and also everybody who is watching online. This is the last sermon in this series, Finding Truth, and I do believe that God is going to do something powerful and special in our lives, in our church, in our region as we really apply ourselves to his truth. And you know, our society and in fact human nature cultures throughout the world, you know, we appreciate the diversity, we appreciate the good things that have to be offered by every particular culture in the world, no doubt about it, but did you know that because we're human beings, we are also subject to falsehoods, lies, you know, in the passage we're going to be looking at, uh, the verses immediately after that, Jesus talks about the devil and the father of lies. And so that's kind of the context for the verses that we're going to be looking at. And we need to realize that truth cannot be determined by the culture in which we live. Truth is not determined by culture. And that's especially important whether we have a right-wing dictator or whether we have an overly permissive culture. Culture does not determine truth. And when we give ways to lies, the truth gets pushed out. And we want to make sure that we are a people who live by truth. That, you know, that doesn't mean that we're going to force our beliefs or our faith on other people. We're not going to do that. But neither should we allow ourselves to have lies imposed upon us. We want to live according to the truth that is ours through the Word of God and through Jesus Christ. And it's very important that we make that statement, that we make that declaration for our own lives, that, God, we're going to live by your truth. Jesus uh, speaks to us in John chapter 8, and we're going to just take a segment of this and begin with verse 30. And it says about Jesus, even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, 
And this is even for a culture that represents the people God chose through whom to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Even they were subject to some deception. And so they say, we are Abraham's descendants, have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, what's the goal? What's the prize for adhering to the truth? It is freedom. Freedom is the goal. Freedom is our prize. We in America are a nation that prizes our freedom. We believe that freedom is something to live for. We believe that freedom is something to die for, and freedom is at the heart of Christianity as well. That's one of the reasons that Christians pose such a threat to oppressive systems around the world whether we're talking about government systems or any other ideology or kind of thinking or any kind of culture that would impose lies, Christians represent a threat to that system. Because, you know, we don't even have to be overtly rebellious against those systems, but our focus on the truth will undermine those systems and people in power, depending upon the lies that perpetuate the system, they know it. They know it. And, you know, by the simple fact that we determine that we're going to live by truth and not by lies, we pose a threat. And, you know, th that's just when we go about Quietly living our lives and doing good deeds and good things and, and living according to the truth. We're a threat, even without being rebellious. But sometimes, in certain stages of a nation's history, perhaps, or the development of a culture, Christians can be quite revolutionary. We can be very revolutionary in our opposition to oppression usually built upon lies. And that's why Christianity has been at the forefront of movements of freedom. That's why Christianity is at the forefront in opposition to slavery throughout the world. That's why the civil rights movement of the United States came out of the church. It came from believers. And, uh, you know, that's why Christians were really the catalysts for the downfall of the Soviet empire back in the 1980s. Christians have led the way in undermining cultures built on lies. <laughs> and, you know, Christianity is responsible for a whole lot of political freedom. In fact, I guess we could say that the political freedoms that we have enjoyed here in America were built upon a foundation of morals shaped by Christianity. But Christian freedom is about a whole lot more than political freedom. It, it can have political ramifications, but for us to be truly free, for one thing, it doesn't depend upon our political situation. It doesn't depend on our political circumstances. But the danger for us today, can, can we just be real? 
The danger for us today is that we no longer, as a culture, as a society, are founded on the truth of God's Word. And I'm not saying that we were ever a Christian nation. I'm just saying that Christian moral principles were foundational to our culture. Didn't always live up to those standards, but they were there. But we're not so well-grounded in Christianity anymore. I would say that our ideas of freedom are more, are more like a, a teenager's idea of freedom. I would say they're, they're more like the ideas of freedom that I had when I was 16, which was what, about 20 years ago? A whole lot more than that. You know, you remember getting your driver's license when you were 16? That was the big rite of passage. And I got my driver's license just as soon as I could after my 16th birthday. And for me, freedom meant that I could take the car out on my own and drive like a maniac. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the second day I had my license, the first day that my dad let me go out on my own, I took a friend with me in my mom's car, which had become my car that I got to buy from my parents. And uh, it was a pretty fast car. And so freedom for me meant me and my friend driving through the streets of Greenville, Kentucky, driving on these residential streets, 30 mile an hour speed limit, but I was going about 50 or 60. Freedom for me meant that even though there was a light rain and we're on this residential street and we're approaching a 90 degree turn in the little street, I'm still going 50 or 60 miles an hour. I was free. Woo! I was free to drive that way, but you know what? I was not free from the laws of physics. And when I went around that corner, I just kept on skidding. The car just kept going. We dropped off about a three or four foot embankment. But I was going fast enough that we didn't roll. We just slid off and landed about 10 or 15 feet out in the middle of a vacant lot. Fortunately, we didn't kill anybody. And it just knocked the tire off of one of the wheels. We were able to change the tire and drive right out of there. And Dad didn't know until a few months later. He sees this little dent up under the thing. And like, how did this happen? I don't know. I was free. Well, fortunately, I learned a lesson just the second day I had my license. And so freedom meant, you know, okay, maybe I'm not going to drive that fast and that crazy, especially in a residential area. But, you know, freedom then became uh, I, I could have the car keys and go out. And now I could drink and smoke weed with my friends, just drive, and drive out in the country and drink and smoke smoke weed. I remember even one night, so free, so free that we actually drove right by a wreck, a car accident that had just happened where two teenagers from my county died in a high-speed crash due to alcohol. And you know where we were going? We were going to buy beer. And we did. Didn't stop us because we're free. Free. <laughs> to be stupid in that case, right? And I, I continued in that kind of freedom, even into my, my time in the Army. After a couple of years of college, and joined the Army. And, you know, I remember, remember I, I got one night, I walked out of the bar, and I got in the car, and I put the key, 
I tried to put the keys in the ignition, and they just wouldn't go in. And it wouldn't work. And people started gathering around the car and like, hey, what are you doing there? I was actually in a taxi. In the <laughs> driver's seat of the taxi. My keys didn't work. Fortunately, somebody saved me and kept the police from arresting me. And I walked across the street and got in my car and started driving back to Fort Clayton and uh, woke myself up driving off the road. Yeah, I was free, wasn't I? really free. And I, I think for a lot of us, our issues might be different, but we're stuck in the same teenage mindset of what freedom really is. Maybe being free to drive while drinking is not your definition of freedom, but for some of us, the definition of freedom means trying to do life while under the influence of Greed, trying to do life, trying to raise a family, trying to, you know, be a good husband or a good wife while under the influence of inappropriate sexual attraction and even activity. Oh, that's free. Oh, yeah, that's free. Freedom means trying to heal our internal brokenness while driven by success or some other thing that just really actually keeps us in bondage. And for a lot of us, freedom means doing whatever I want to do, however I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. It's teen freedom for grown-ups. Am I meddling tonight or today? Hmm. Teen freedom for grown-ups. Timothy Keller, great pastor in New York City, talks about two myths that the world has about freedom. Myth number one, freedom means having no master. He says freedom really means having the right master. Myth number two, freedom means doing what you desire. No, freedom means doing what you were created to do. See, the problem with the idea that you have no master is, as Bob Dylan said, anybody remember Bob Dylan? You've got to serve somebody. You will serve somebody or something. There's... There's no just, oh, I'm not serving anything. Even if you determine you're just going to serve yourself and your own desires, even if you determine that you're just going to live according to, you know, whatever your whims are, you are serving self-indulgence. You are serving something that you don't really have full control over. And the problem with the freedom that says, oh, I'm just going to do whatever I desire Tim Keller says, your desires are like cancer. Cancer cells that, you know, no longer just divide the way they were designed to divide, but just divide and multiply in some crazy fashion. That's the nature of our desires. And, you know, once we satisfy one desire, we're off to another one. Desires have this tendency to multiply. They're like a cancer. And, you know, uh, freedom is not living according to just the multiplicity of desires that enter our heads or our hearts. See, no myth can lead to freedom. No lie, no, no false belief system, false notion of freedom will give you freedom. <laughs> Lies don't lead to freedom. And beliefs and ideas and opinions and structures that don't line up with reality 
cannot lead you to freedom. <sighs> in my lifetime, I was born in the 1950s, believe it or not, 1959. 1960s are uh, years that are associated with freedom, right? Yeah. Moral freedom. We've been living according to the moral freedom that was the ideal in the 1960s, the, the sexual revolution. And the result of participating in this sexual revolution, this moral freedom, is, is a generation more confused, more anxious, more depressed than any generation that has ever existed in American history. Yes. It's a fact. Just this week, I read an article. I, I read the Washington Post, New York Times. I subscribe to them. I, you know, I want to see what is, you know, the mindset of the world that, that we're living in. You know, I, I, I don't think that we all ought to get our opinion of the other side from the other side. You know, whatever side you're on, you, you, you know, you need to see what the other side is saying and vice versa. So I try to be very diverse in uh, my sources of news. I've even been chastised for that. But I want to know what is being said. And I read an article in the Washington Post this week by a mom who is frustrated. Why is she frustrated? She's frustrated because she's only the mom of boys or a boy. And society has given her this name of boy mom. And she doesn't like being called a boy mom because that has the connotation that she's supposed to raise her boy in a certain way. And she's frustrated that he has not had a choice in his gender selection yet. She's frustrated that he was assigned a gender at birth. <sighs> Folks, our idolatry of human sexuality has led to confusion. And, you know, I, I want to be sympathetic to people who really are struggling with issues like gender selection. People who really are struggling with their gender identity. We want to be sensitive to that. Why, part of the reason is because our culture has produced that. It's not, in some ways, it's not their fault. Can I just, I'm going to meddle a little bit more. If you put your pronouns in your email, can you stop? I mean, unless there's really a question as to your gender and you want to make clear, but if you're just trying to be sympathetic, you know, maybe you're helping a couple of people. Maybe a couple of people will see that and think, oh, yeah, they understand. But a whole lot more will see that and will begin to think that somehow gender selection ought to be confusing. You know, what you're doing is saying that, you know, it ought to be confusing. It ought to be something you have to think about. And, and you know, you tell that to a bunch of kids, a bunch of teenagers, a bunch of young adults who are hurting, who are lonely, who have all kinds of other issues and anxieties and, and who have depression who are trying to fit in, who wonder where to fit in, and we're giving all these confusing messages, stop. Stop 
Just love people. Care for people who they are. But let's get rid of the notion that certain things that are pretty biblically defined and even biologically defined are just normal. That's normal. Yeah, we can be sympathetic toward people who do have struggles in that area. We should be. You know, I want Victory Church to be the church where people with those struggles can come and be loved and cared for without, you know, people slamming them. But that doesn't mean that our job is to perpetuate confusion. Gosh, I'm meddling, aren't I? See, we've drifted from our moral anchor. You know, another example of that, you know, really, it's almost as though Christians don't really care anymore about moral excellence in our leaders. But we're free. Holy cow, we're free. Mm. Free. You know what? Another name for all these false ways of pursuing freedom is? You know what that other name is for sin? Jesus says in John 8, 34, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now he's not talking about you mess up one time. He's talking about people who live in continual sin, who live in self-deception, who live under the deception that perhaps is offered by their culture, their society. Sin can feel good. I mean, you could probably relate. Back when you were a sinner, before you came to Christ, a lot of you enjoyed sin. It can feel liberating, like, you know, like I felt when I had the car keys. It could be pleasurable. If, if sin weren't attractive and didn't offer some relief, however temporary the relief is, it wouldn't have any attraction for us at all. But it presents to us false promises of fulfillment. Sin presents false promises of meaning. Sin is a trap, and it becomes our master, and we become its slaves. That's what Jesus said. And there's one hope for liberation. And it's this. What will set you free? The truth. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Doesn't mean you will no longer face a temptation. Doesn't mean if you struggle with an area that automatically you're going to be free of that struggle. but you will be free. You'll be free. Can I just tell you, you identify with Jesus, however much you struggle in this area or that, you will be free. The truth will set you free. That's the hope. Now, Jesus points us to some ways of relating to the truth. First of all, verse 31 Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. See, believing in Jesus requires some follow-up. 
And the follow-up is to believe his teaching, to hold to his teaching. Hold to his teaching. That, that is the teaching of Jesus. And that would also include the teaching of all of Scripture, which is inspired by the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if you're really a follower of Jesus, you have to be a person of his teaching, a person of his book, a person. You know, Jesus said about himself that this whole book points to him. <laughs> and so we want to hold to his teaching. We want to hold to the teaching about Jesus, the teaching that points to Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you must be a person of the word that points to Jesus. This is not optional for your walk with Jesus. If you want to live according to the truth that will set you free, you have to hold to the teaching of Jesus. I was blessed a couple of weeks ago to go to our middle school ministry that happens during our Sunday morning services. And I, I was really blessed by the instructor, the teacher, Donette. And man, she was engaging those students with the word of God. And she, after they got over their initial shyness of having the pastor walk into their classroom, uh, she, she coaxed them out of their shell and they began responding to her again. And I was really blessed and amazed by the amount of Bible knowledge that our middle school students have. It was awesome. I was really, really encouraged. I was impressed. And you know, that's the hope for the next generation. <laughs> that is the hope. Get them into the word of God. And you know, that's not just for middle school Students here on a Sunday morning or high school students here on a Thursday night or any of the children's ministries that happen on Sunday mornings or any other time of week. Folks, this is our jobs as parents to get our kids in the word. In fact, the kids who are most engaged in the middle school uh, life group or ministry were kids whose parents teach them the word of God. And we want to help you. We want to partner with you in that. We are your partners. It's not our primary job as a church. It's your primary job as a parent. And our job is to come alongside you and give you the tools and help you and to encourage you to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is what we promise when we dedicate our children to the Lord here at Victory Church. Amen. Amen. Hold my teaching. Hold, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. So hold to the teaching of Jesus. But you know, hold to my teaching is kind of an incomplete translation. And if you have the King James Version or some other more literal version, hold my teaching is, is, is good. It's a good translation. It's just kind of narrow and incomplete. Because the, the Greek literally means abide in my word abide in my word. So, you know, hold to a teaching. That sounds good. I'm going to hold to it. I'm going to learn it. But abide, it's talking about how you live. It's about staying in the word. It's about finding your place in the word. Make the word your home. But, uh, you know, to abide in my word is not just to abide in my teaching. 
word is much more expansive. In fact, we learn from the very first verses of the Gospel of John, which we're in, that Jesus is the word made flesh. So when he says, abide in my word, he's really saying, abide in me, abide in my teaching, abide in what I say, and abide in the word that comes out of my mouth. Abide in my presence. This is about my presence. Abide in the word, which is Jesus. Abide in the truth who is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Abide in me. This is about presence. Folks, we need to be people of the book and people of the presence of God. Mm. Remain in my word. Abide in it. Take residence in it. Make it your home. Are you that familiar, that comfortable with the word of God and with the presence of God? We're saved by believing in Jesus. He's speaking to those who have believed. But he's saying, if you're really my disciples, you'll abide in my word. See, there's an ongoing living out of our salvation that we receive by faith in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the first step. But if you don't go beyond that, you will not experience freedom. To experience freedom, you have to abide in in his word, abide in him, his presence. So learn how to surrender to the presence of Jesus. If you want freedom, surrender to his word, surrender to his presence. There's no other way to freedom. And Jesus follows that up. So verse 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Verse 32 then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, a lot of times we just say, oh, the truth will set you free. No, the truth you know will set you free. Yes. Know the truth. You cannot have freedom without knowing the truth. And knowing, especially if you go back to the Hebrew thinking that is behind the Greek writing of the New Testament, Knowing is intimate. See, we, we want to know the Word. And the, if the Word is the presence of God, we want intimacy with God. We want to be people of His Word, people of His presence, and we want to know God. We want to be people who know our God. You know, sometimes you can ask somebody, well, you know, do you know Jesus? My father-in-law used to do that all the time. That was one of his favorite uh, ways of Entering into a conversation would lead to a witness about Jesus. And he was very good at that. Do you know Jesus? Oh, I know about Jesus. Well, would you like to know him? Know the truth. Know the truth. What Jesus is really saying here is, is if you get into my word, you're going to know me. You're going to know God. You know, getting by in life, it's who you know, right? How about knowing God? Knowing Him. Knowing Him. And see, this is why lies and sin and the devil that Jesus talks about in the verses after this are so detrimental to our freedom. Because, you know, lies and God just don't mix. They just don't mix. They shouldn't mix in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, the way we live, our lifestyles. 
And, you know, if we find ourselves just living according to lies, whether of our own making or of society, we're just living according to lies, guess what? We're not going to be in right relationship with God. And, you know, sure, we can make excuses. We Christians do that all the time. Oh, God knows my heart. But you also know your heart, too, and you know when your heart is far from him. See, when I, when I find myself in sin, and hopefully, hopefully my sins are more, you know, they're, they're a whole lot different than they were when I was 16. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> now, now if I, I get into a conflict with somebody or with my wife and I feel like torn up inside and, you know, when I'm in that kind of sin, guess what? I don't really want to be around God. I want to be like Adam and Eve who went and hid from God when they, you know, entered into sin, right? But fortunately, uh, we serve a God who calls us back to himself. He calls us back to himself. And so if you want to be free, you've got to abide in the word, hold to his teaching. You have to know the truth, know your God, know his presence, know his will for your life. And the final key in this passage is take your place as a child in God's family. The next verses, 35 and 36, now a slave has no permanent place in the family. You're no longer a slave when you belong to Jesus. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, notice the lowercase s there, a son or a child. In the Greek, you know, when you talk about children, it could just be male or female. But a son belongs to the family forever. So if the son, the son, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. <laughs> Hallelujah. If the son sets you free, you're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to yourself. You're not a slave to the devil. You're not a slave to lies. You're not a slave to all those desires. You're not a slave to these false notions of freedom. You are a child of God yourself. You are a member of the family. You know, a slave has no secure place in the family. A slave's existence is very, very, just can be very tumultuous. And whatever kind of slavery we're talking, no freedom, no real security. I read about a family who adopted a child from a horrific orphanage in another country. And when they brought her home, one of the things they taught her, first off, here's your bedroom and you're expected to keep it clean. And she fixated on that part of it. And so every morning they'd go to her room and she would have it just perfectly spotless and she would be sitting on the bed and she would say, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you still love me? And that went on for a long time until, you know, through the love of her adoptive parents, she came to understand that she was unconditionally a part of the family, and their child forever. And that love set her free. How much more the love of our Father, who invites us into a relationship with him as his sons and daughters, and whom the Son sets free 
is free indeed. Hallelujah. I want to ask you, have you allowed Jesus to set you free? Would you let him come into your life? Would you let him speak his word to you? Would you let him reveal himself to you so that he would know you and you would know him? It starts with belief. That's what this passage starts with. To those who believed in him. Would you take that first step of belief? If you're here with us today or if you're watching online, today's the day to say yes to the offer of freedom that we have in Jesus. Let the Son set you free. Just pray this prayer to express belief in him. I want to ask everybody here who's with me to pray this out loud. If you need to pray it for the first time, pray it from your heart. If you're watching, pray this. Let Jesus do something fresh and new in your life. Say these words, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I believe Jesus died. He was raised from the dead, and he is Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. Set me free. Fill me with your presence, and help me live for you. Thank you for receiving me as one of your children. I'm yours forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you're here in the room, stay with us. If you prayed that prayer, you're watching online, stay with us. We're going to do something right now that really is an expression of who we are as children of God and the family of God together. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. So if you're here in the room, you have these elements. Maybe you're watching in a position where you can Push pause and go find some bread or crackers, some grape juice, ideally, or any kind of juice. And these represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And these help us to experience Jesus in a very real and tangible way. God's made us so that we, we can relate to the touch and the taste. And hopefully what we experience now in particular the Lord's Supper is, is reflected in the statement of Scripture that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Would you do that right now? This is from the Apostle Paul. He describes the Lord's Supper. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is the Lord. He is coming again. He could not be held by the grave. He gave his body. He gave his blood, but he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back for us because we're his children, and he wants us to be with him forever. So we celebrate that. With regard to the bread, Paul says in a couple of chapters before, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, one family, because we all partake of the same loaf. 
The bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. Let's eat together. And Paul says, the cup of blessing for which we give thanks is a sharing in the blood of Jesus. Let's share this together. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what it means to have Jesus just take over our lives. Lord Jesus, we ask that we just would be consumed by your presence, that we would lay hold of you, your word, your truth, and that we would experience true freedom. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now stay with us. Somebody's going to come and share some very important next steps. Thanks for listening to the Victory Church Podcast. If this message inspired you, feel free to share it with your friends, family, and social media. And make sure to subscribe to hear future messages from Victory Church. If you'd like to support the mission of Victory, please visit getvictory.net slash give. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.